Transdisciplinary thinking is a great gateway for innovation. Innovative ideas often lead to collective impact. But how do we protect our ideas? And when is the right time to protect them? This episode is brought to you by the Master of Digital Media program at the Center for Digital Media. The MDM program is a 16-month professional graduate program that engages students in real-world projects and coursework that provides valuable leadership experience, training, and top digital media industry connections. Graduates have the know-how and confidence to work at the highest level in a range of industries as creators, producers, innovators, or entrepreneurs. Learn more at the cdm.ca. Hello and welcome to Raincoat. My name is Isabel. And I'm Sarah. And we are excited to share how academia, industry and communities can work together on complex problems and improve knowledge translation. Today, we're excited to have John Festinger, a BC-based counsel and an adjunct professor at UBC with lots of experience in intellectual property law, as well as Nikos Harris, an associate professor of teaching at the Peter A. Allard School of Law with extensive experience as appellate counsel. They've joined us today to share their journey of bringing an idea they had together to fruition and all the nitty gritty processes they had to consider during this time. So before we get started, Can the two of you tell us how you met and this partnership started in the first place? Well, I, I've been an adjunct faculty at, at the Allard School of Law since 1993. I think that's when I started adjuncting. I heard about Nikos first from my students because I, I once had the temerity probably about seven or eight years ago uh, to ask who who is the best teacher in the law school? And, and the answer was, was Nikos. And I, I've always been interested in pedagogy and great teaching. And uh, so that's when I first heard about Nikos and his techniques, which are, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, extremely analog. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Nikos, Nikos would write on the blackboard, Uh, wouldn't even have notes and just engage his class uh, in a very non-technological and extremely successful way because there, there was no hesitation when people said, oh, you know, Nikos is, is by far the best teacher in the law school. And then I had the good fortune, actually, I think, of, of really meeting Nikos for the first time uh, at, uh, at an evening, a law school graduation dinner a number of years later. So that's my story. Nikos, how did we meet? <laughs> well, John has this legendary status. And I assumed uh, when I started teaching here, I constantly, uh, students are talking about me, the amazing things they're doing in John's classes. John's teaching about two or three things. I assumed he was full-time faculty here because he's working harder than any of us. I find out it's one of about 17 different jobs he's doing, uh, along with working in a law, law firm. And, you know, John really started warming me to the idea of technology, because I knew he was really um, on the leading edge, particularly here at the law school. But I started hearing such positive things from students about the learning in his classroom. And, and I knew John was incorporating a lot of techniques and it gave me some confidence that there must be a way of incorporating technology and still make it an engaging class because that's what John's students were telling me. I took gaming law, I took intellectual property law, there was technology and I just can't stop talking about how much we're learning. And that started giving me confidence um, um, about students. And also at that dinner where John and I first met, I was introducing John, who was getting an award for his incredible adjunct teaching. And you can see how unadvanced I am in terms of technology. The way I would follow John every weekend is that he would be part of a sports radio broadcast. And I introduced him as saying, well, you know him as this and this and that. But of course, he's the great 
uh, show on Team 1040 Radio, and the students looked at me like, what are you talking about? And John informed me later, no students listen to the radio. So he's, he's not only keeping me up to date on technology, he's keeping me up to date on what this generation does to get their information. Totally different demographic, right? Everybody yeah. who's 40 years and up, uh, including judges, would hear that radio show. Yes. And no, no student of mine had ever mentioned it because, <laughs> well, you know, uh, Isabel and Sarah, you, you know this. When do you ever listen to the radio? You don't. Fair, I do. On I the do. Ride. <laughs> you're, you're exception. <laughs> you're, you're old school. I just bought one, actually. Wow. <laughs> Oh, this is amazing. Okay, so I mean, also the project that we're going to talk about today is about uh, a technology um, and a digital idea. But before we get into that, why is it important to keep legal issues in mind when having an idea, John? There's a number of choices that anyone who is innovating has to make about how they want the fruits of their idea to be dealt with. And, and that's, you know, in a sense, the choice of the author of the, uh, the original idea. What's really interesting is that intellectual property law doesn't protect ideas in and of themselves, only the manifestation, the invention, or, um, or the, the work in a copyright sense. So, so why IP law is important is so that you can make the right choices for you. Some people want to financially exploit the idea. Some people want the idea to be open, to be available to others. You know, and, and when you're working in education, that's very often the case. So it's about making sort of good choices, whether you want those choices to be commercial or non-commercial. And, and it's about having a strategy that ensures that your work is used the way you want it to be used, if, if that makes sense. I can just comment on, you know, I was so new to this whole process and we started developing the project I'm sure we'll get into, but John critically kept asking some key questions because of his deep knowledge. You know, we're using this avatar and we're really getting advanced with it. And we're getting to the point of, well, we're going to launch this. And John's like, we've got to double check that we're going to be able to use that, particularly when we go public. Or things like, this is probably going to be a popular project with other schools and maybe applications beyond. We have to start preparing ourselves for how open source we want to be and some of those things to think through. And, you know, you get so into the project. Boy, we need the avatar to do this. We need to have this question. John kept reminding us of some of those um, broader ideas. And particularly as your idea is coming to fruition, you're getting really excited about the content of it. John was reminding us about some key procedures that are essential because, you know, you don't want to have launched this thing and then you start getting in these battles about other universities are using it and we wanted to roll it out in a certain way. Like we actually do anticipate hopefully sharing a lot of these things, particularly across an educational spectrum, but it's stuff you needed to turn your mind to. Sounds like a lot of IP law is about asking key questions and not being a downer, but really pointing out like key facts that might become an issue later on. So just kind of grounding people and getting them, making sure all the ideas are covered. So can you, I guess, John, do you have some sort of process or framework that you use when an idea comes to mind? And how do you kind of ask those key questions and make sure that all your bases are covered? Well, really, most of it is is, is common sense. Um, you know, what if what have you got? What do you believe it will do? Um, and most of the time, the the, the the job is just one of providing perspective, because most people who come in with an what what they consider to be an innovative idea. Um, really believe that it will change the world. So you have to actually talk people down from that a little bit um, so that they can be effective uh, in making the, cho the, the, the choices that are kind of on the menu because changing the world is not on the menu at the initial stages. Uh, and, and there's a lot of mundane things uh, to work through. So, so the, the, the real process working with, with innovators is to ground them because as Nico said, you, you just get so intense and so carried away 
that you kind of miss. Uh, it's easy to miss the details and it's easy to miss the deeper questions. So you just go through a checklist. And I, I think what's, what's really interesting is, you know, we talk about IP law, but these days IP law um, uh, runs right into privacy law in some interesting ways because yeah. so much of the technology that we are evolving and even, you know, the app that, that Nikos uh, and I have been working on, um, you know, involves student privacy and, and, and the design elements become absolutely crucial. So, you know, when, when you're trying to suss out what the issues are, which is your question, you really have to uh, go through the design and the intention and match them up. And 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 see kind of what's out of sync um, with either the law or um, or, or 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 what um, what the the creator really wants to have happen. Um, so I, I think I, you know for me the process is just discerning what's kind of out of sync, what's out of place, what's 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 not harmonious. And, and because those things tend to stick out um, and, and, and they, they end up sticking out in terms of privacy because all, all technology, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the exhaust of all technology is data and following the data trail becomes incredibly important. And coming from a non-law background, I feel like there are lots of terms thrown around and I don't know if that means the same thing. So doing a little myth busting is protecting an idea or the manifestation of an idea, the same thing as trademarking. No. So there's three, there, there's three different um, areas in IP law and they are actually unrelated. You know, we <laughs> talk about IP law as if it's a, 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 a monolith. It's not, it's three very different areas of law copyright, trademark, and patents. They all work differently. Mm -hmm. They all have different statutory sources. So legal sources, you know, mm -hmm. bills that, that become acts of law. Mm -hmm. um, and they have different rules. Um, and, and, you know, trademarking in particular works completely differently in, in even philosophically from copyright and patents. Um, and that's why we have a whole course and probably should have three whole courses, one in one in each of those subjects. Um, and, and so the the the, the myth uh, busting that I would want to do is that IP law is one thing because it's not. And even and even though we teach it as one course in law school, that's actually not quite right either. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's hard to explain and we're not probably going to do it in the course of, of this uh, podcast. So just think three different areas of law, at least. There are also some peripheral ones, um, each with its own rules. Okay. And then one more kind of mythy question is licensing and like non-disclosure agreements. Those fall under IP law, under yeah. copyright, trademark? No, the, so um, uh, when you're dealing with licensing, um, one thing that uh, that all three areas have in common is that uh, so a license is just a contract um, that allows um, uh, the you know allows someone to do something with somebody else's intellectual property. Um, uh, so you can license a uh, you can license copyright material. You can license uh, a patent or use of a patent or um, uh, or or kind of any any part of uh, patent technology that 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 you've obtained a patent for. And you could also license a trademark. In fact, we license you know Ferrari licenses uh, its trademark to you know, for clothing, for all sorts of things, for pens, you know, so big marks do a ton of licensing. Um, so, and non-disclosure agreements are different. Non-disclosure agreements, again, are a contract, but they are just that you will keep 
um, the information you get that may involve intellectual property uh, confidential. Um, and, and that also is its own area of law because there's an area of, of law that falls under intellectual property called trade secrets where uh, you don't actually you know, get a copyright or a trademark, but you keep what you have as a secret and the law will actually protect that. So the secret sauce, you know, in 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 in, in a hamburger or you know the, the formula for Coke, those were no nobody patented those because you'd eventually have to disclose them. So they just kept it a secret and allowed the law to the extent it can to help them protect that secret. So many like niche hidden pockets of law that <laughs> I'm learning it's so complex. much. <laughs> it's complex. It's complex for sure. It is really complex and I'm sure we will not cover all of it, but we would love to talk about some of these processes in context of the case study. So we would like to talk about virtual mood. Um, Nikos, can you tell us what virtual mood is about, what it means and uh, why did you think it's special to be part of? Yeah, and uh, you know, one thing we do um, at the law school where we're trying to obviously teach people a lot of substantive law, we're also trying to have them the chance to in, engage in experiential activities where they'll actually be able to uh, mimic um, uh, the conduct of a lawyer, to be able to go through an actual hearing process, which actually teaches them a lot about procedure. And it's a great way to learn substantive law, to actually not just make the argument in an exam or in a paper, but to make your argument before someone who is a, a decision maker. And so traditional in uh, law school will be a mooting program where in first year you have to argue a case before a panel of judges, which are just senior lawyers who donate their time to the law school and you come and you do a written argument in teams and there's another team that does the other view of the argument often it's sort of crown versus defense type thing if it's a criminal law problem and you argue it before uh, a set of practitioners and our students uh, you know especially first year law is incredibly intensive they take seven courses in their second semester they're often writing a hundred percent final exams it's an incredibly stressful experience the moot process um uh, where again, we you're, you're engaging in um, um, mimicking the, the the work of a lawyer. It's pass fail. If you do a decent job of it, you're going to pass. But it tends to be one of the most stressful things a student does in first year. If you think back to your first year experience, you kind of have a hazy recollection of that one exam you had some trouble with. That mooting experience where in your first year of law school, you had to put on a robe and go up at a podium and argue before lawyers. Anybody who's a called lawyer is just seen with this mythical status by law students. My goodness, you got through this process and you're in the profession. I am so incredibly nervous speaking before you and I'm having to use a lot of legalese and so on. And it was, we, we would constantly, hear from students. They found it an incredibly useful experience. We found it taught them a lot. They actually finally felt like they were a lawyer for a moment in first year law, but it was one of the most stressful things, including even though we would try and be supportive of students throughout this process, um, we would uh, actually be at a place where some students would physically have difficulty starting their submission or in the middle of their submissions, we'd have to take a break um, while they were just under such a stress load, they needed to take a break and come back and finish. And that's okay. We would tell them that happens in real court too. But it was a problem we identified as we do want to give them this experience. It's very important to their learning. It's very important to finding out that you might actually be interested in litigation, but you didn't know that till you had the chance to do the MOOC. How can we better support students through this process? And it's interesting, we were throwing around different ideas. We did mock demonstrations in front of the students. So they actually saw some upper year students debating. Uh, we tried to give them more resources. But I think there was a feeling that students needed a 
better tool to be able to lower that stress. And maybe on that note, I could go over to you, John, because John, it was your insight into some work with uh, exposure type therapy that um, gave us this idea of let's give students an opportunity in a safer virtual setting where nobody's watching to be able to practice their submission in an atmosphere that's not unlike what they'll be coming and doing in a week or two. Well, sure, happy to talk about that. Um, I'm um, an academic in residence at the UBC Emerging Media Lab. And as, as part of that, they, they put on various seminars with actually other universities across Canada. And I, um, and I was uh, listening to, uh, uh, a talk by uh, Professor Stéphane Bouchard, I think of uh, Université de Montréal and, and the University of Ottawa. Um, he's a psychologist and he was talking about the uses of virtual reality in therapy. Um, and he was giving various uh, exposure therapy examples. You know, if you have a fear of heights and, or a fear of flying, uh, uh, exposure therapy means they take you up in a plane. Now they can take you up in Microsoft Flight Simulator in virtual reality. And, 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 and what he was saying is that this actually works. It actually has uh, the, the, the intended effect of exposure therapy. So, uh, you know, he was obviously talking about stress and things that we humans are most afraid of. And, and, you know, immediately, for reasons that Nikos explained, uh, I went back to law school and remembered that the most terrifying thing in law school by far uh, to students is, is uh, the first-year moot. And I, I was terrified by the first-year moot as well until I did the first-year moot uh, <laughs> in, in 1977, I guess it was. And I loved it. I went, you know, it was a huge turning point. And all that terror and all that fear was, was needless. So the, the, the very basic thought was, well, I wonder if we could create an app that, um, uh, that kind of used the exposure therapy technique or reframed just practice, you know, in, in a virtual environment where you're being asked, you know, realistic questions could we do it as uh, as a as a practice tool uh, as an as uh, in, in an app that would allow students to at least get used to some parts of the environment and take the the threshold of fear down some? So that that that's really what it, what it was. And through EML, uh, through the Emerging Media Lab, they 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 sort of have a student co-op program. The deadline was literally that day. Uh, so I put something in, I called Nikos um, or emailed Nikos with kind of all the details and asked whether it was vi viable because I, I would withdraw it and not take up somebody else's uh, space on a project. And uh, Nikos thought it was a good idea. That's how it started. So Nikos, earlier you mentioned that, you know, you're a very analog paper and pen, traditional. So how did this project change the way you think about using technology and law, if it changed anything at all? Yeah, and, and you know, my suspicion was using technology for the sake of technology. I'd done some research into using a lot of technology in the classroom. I saw it could be useful. I also saw it could create a competing pathways where the student's trying to listen to the lecture, but then they've got dense PowerPoints and then they've got a clicker they're using and so on. So I was a somewhat skeptical. Also, you're always skeptical of things you're not good at, right? So it's a great defense mechanism. Well, I'm doing this on a principled basis, not because I, I can't figure out what button to click. And so I went into this a little bit nervous, but knowing how successful John had been in carefully incorporating technology. And, and that's one thing I learned in my research, that if you do it on a careful way and you're sort of checking in and looking for feedback, um, it's a much more likely to be successful. And so that gave me the confidence. I knew John had been able to incorporate it in a way that 
actually made it pedagogically useful and, and gave a pedagogical advantage to the students. What amazed me in the process, and part of it is we had the EML incredible support doing a lot of the detailed work, but the approach was not technology focused. The approach started with us spending a long time with the EML students and the EML students doing their own research we need to understand the mooting experience. We need to get detail on not just the physical setup of the courtroom, what students find frustrating about it. So much of the work was analog work before we're even doing anything. And this started getting my interest. These students who are doing incredible work in this co-op are really trying to understand what the objectives are, and what the physical mooting experience is like. And because they were doing that research, and then we had, you know, again, I thought this is all going to be about millions of lines of programming, which I'm sure there was behind the scenes, but we were lining up students who had mooted in first year for them to interview. Nothing about the technology. They wanted to understand what was stressful about it what would have helped you what did you find the most difficult thing and so on okay they were taking our non-technology information to start shaping a product that was going to do an incredible job of simulating the actual hearing each week we would give some feedback. Okay, you've got a great thing here, but the judge wouldn't actually do this. Well, the perspective of the speaker actually would be this way. Um, actually, those questions would sometimes come at these types of intervals. They would come back and obviously using technology, make it so much better of a product. And the better they made it, the less you viewed it as a piece of technology. It was really for me realizing the goal wasn't to have bells and whistles because you could. The goal was to create a virtual reality that was, as John mentioned, was going to expose them to the process, but in a safer environment where they could get used to some of the things they were doing to take down that stress level. We also know that students want to practice anytime they want. Okay, our law school one of the things we did when we built it, we sort of had a lots of couches, right? And you'd see student at eight in the night listening to their lecture and at midnight um, working with a friend on their presentation. We wanted to have something available anytime you want it, you're able to do it. But I was incredibly impressed at how the technology wasn't driving it. What was driving it was our objectives. And a second thing I would say that made it meaningful for me and really gave me confidence in the technology. I'm often worried about things taking many, many years to develop. And I find particularly when you get to an academic institution, things are measured sometimes in decades, not hours. And I, 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 I sort of like quick turnaround. And one thing that became very clear at the start was Let's think about this in terms of first generation and future generation, okay? And, and it was an idea to say, let's create a basic product. It won't be perfect. It won't maybe in its first generation being using artificial intelligence. It's going to be things we program in that will happen at certain times. But I really like that because it didn't squelch the idea of a future version, but we all focused on what could we do in a year that would create a usable product. And one thing we found as we went through the process, some things we were able to advance on sooner, but I really like that, again, it wasn't the technology driving it. Well, we want to show off as much as we can. The feeling was, let's create something that is going to be a realistic experience for the students, very close to what they'll be doing in the courtroom. And second of all, let's be realistic about what we create so we can have something out in a year that we can test and get feedback on. And let's not hold back for five years because we want to, you know, our first version to have artificial intelligence. Technology in this case really seemed to have uh, enhanced the learning experience and also developing a new 
product uh, with technology seems not necessarily predictable. So at what point in this journey of coming up with the idea, starting to collaborate, at what point did you start thinking about IP? You know, I, 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 I raised it right at the beginning. I'm, I'm an open sourcer, especially when it comes to education. Uh, we've talked about that. We've not uh, made a final policy decision, but as Nico said earlier, uh, we want to be able to share this. Uh, this was developed um, at, at the university for educational purposes with university resources. Um, so uh, I, I've probably been thinking about it from the beginning and 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 have shared my perspective um but we 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 haven't we we you know we haven't had that meeting yet we haven't talked to university council we haven't we haven't sort of uh looked at it and involved uh our faculty uh from uh from a policy standpoint you know all of those things have to happen you know in 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 due course but Uh, you know, we're, we're much more uh, obsessed with developing something that will work for the students, overcoming the challenges that we have and, and will have, uh, and creating something that, that has a great user experience, because I, I, the idea is right, uh, but creating a, a user experience that's right, uh, that's a really big deal. And once we have that, and we know there's really possible, positive feedback and, and, and people really like it, that's when you can really start thinking about what you want your ultimate um, release strategy to be and, and really wrestle. I mean, we know what the IP issues are, but really wrestle with them. You don't want to make those, you know, that's another thing I'll say. Clients often want to make Uh, decisions way too early before they even, you know, uh, have something. I, you know, I, I, I can remember, a, you know, a client for a, a, a new IP, like creating a, a whole tax haven structure before they, <laughs> they even knew that it was actually going to work, right? They were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, be in Bermuda and do this and create subsidiaries for something that didn't even exist. So there is kind of a right time to do it. And it's probably when you have to be mindful of the possibilities all along, but it's when you actually know you have something because people often overestimate the value of their own ideas. And I would say, you know, it, John was really helpful in that, that we started within this educational sort of scope, which I think gives you a lot more flexibility with some of the IP laws and so on. It's a lot more access to open source when you're using it. And we're getting, we're releasing it to students to be able to get feedback from them. We do think though, this can have potential application beyond the university. And we think of that two ways. A lot of great ideas come from universities into broader society. Plus we always try to remember at UBC, the taxpayer is paying for a lot of what's going on here along with tuition. And um, there is an access to justice crisis. We keep using the word crisis and it's not even a large enough word. You know, nobody can afford a lawyer these days and in very few circumstances can actually someone privately retain something for ongoing litigation and so on. Pretty well in over half of court cases, at least one side is self-represented and sometimes both sides are, are self-represented. So when we got thinking about this idea, uh, we started seeing, and I think it was part of the motivation that, yes, this could be great for students. It also could be useful for society. Okay. A lot of people are going to be making their own submissions in a courtroom. That's a simple reality we're at. And we're trying to change that, but we're not going to change it easily. They have so many other things to worry about trying to understand the law. But wouldn't they like to practice their submission in a virtual environment? Wouldn't that um, just seeing the physical setup of the courtroom and the perspective they're going to have at the podium and get used to questions coming from a judge could be incredibly valuable. Also for lawyers, many lawyers are doing pro bono work 
or they're doing work that is only minimally retained and they're essentially doing most of the case pro bono, they may not be able to afford, which can be very time intensive, setting up a practice of their submissions, getting four other lawyers over to play roles. Would it be useful for them to go into a virtual courtroom and have the chance to roll it through? So we didn't let that idea, as John said, stop us from saying, okay, we now have to start signing agreements with who's going to be able to use this technology. And if you use it for a financial purpose, these things will happen. We It motivated us in terms of developing this because we think it can even expand beyond students. But part of that limited rollout idea, kind of like first generation, second generation, let's use probably the easiest IP format in terms of educational purpose within our university, which also has some issues. I mean, you send, you forward an email with someone else's email. I've been learning, oh no, that's a violation of privacy laws. So we have to keep an eye on some things, but it's a safer environment. And I think it gives us more time to focus on the product and not worry about signing agreements with outside agencies who want to use our technology. We talked a lot about kind of thinking about IP straight from the get-go, but are there any other kind of laws that you need to consider when considering a new innovation or any other steps that you'd need to be aware of or other professions, other types of lawyers that need to be engaged in this? Well, you know, depending on the project and uh, and who's in it, uh, there are, you know, there are lots of different steps. Um, you know, do you have a partner who's financing it? You know, we're uh, on our project, we don't have to worry. It's all happening within a supported university context. Uh, but, you know, in the real world, um, uh, there, there's usually a village around a project. Um, and, and I would say the biggest one, um, sort of the nightmare scenario is somebody uh, pursues um, uh, an, a, an innovation, um, and I've, I've unfortunately seen this happen, um, and it turns out to be successful. It turns out to be good. Um, and then they remember that the original idea, you know, happened across a dinner table seven years ago with their, you know, former college roommate, and you know, and and now, and you'll get questions like, "Do I need to get a release?" Uh, and the legal answer is, "Yes, you probably do," and that sort of brings up this kind of all the human elements. Are you still friends with this person? Are they gonna give a release? Are they gonna say, how much am I gonna get paid? What's my percentage? So, um, I, you know, the really just having people be realistic and being realistic about your environment um, and, and how the idea evolved and what you've been doing and, and transparency, even on this project, um, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure what Nico's reaction was, but when I wrote him uh, the note about uh, about the Moot Court project, it was like you know, it was paragraph upon paragraph. Because, and he probably was like, "Why is he telling me all this?" <laughs> um, because you know, it's a great idea. Nothing turns on it, but there was a lot of transparency in it. And that was quite intentional so that everybody was kind of on the same page and we were all on the same side right away. And Nikos knew everything I knew about it. Um, and, and I think that's really important. And, and, you know, and, 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 and that, you know, getting things off on the right foot. And look, in, in, in our case, it, does, it doesn't matter. It, it was... It was courtesy and it was also selling Nikos on the project and just telling them, you know, it was, it was just verbal or, or, you know, email diarrhea where I was just putting everything on the page. But I think in, 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 in the, you know, private sector world, that's even more important. Um, and, you know, and, and Isabel knows that from some of her experiences working in teams, um, uh, how important uh, that sense of team is and the 
and, and disclosure and nobody holding back. And if somebody has sort of a vested interest or needs or really believes it should be a certain way, they need to state that. Um, those are terrible, you know, and, and, and you've even heard me in this conversation say, you know, I'm an open sourcer. This is what I believe about something where we haven't made a final decision, which I also acknowledge, but, but it, at least that level of transparency, um, you know, keeps trust and no one can do any project in the digital world alone. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the days of, uh, you know, of, of developing something in your garage, um, things are way too complex. Uh, and so we all need each other and creating uh, and, and, and being really mindful of that um, is important because there are legal consequences if you're not mindful of that. And, and, and I, I can't add that strongly enough. We often say in law, plan for the worst and hope it doesn't happen. Okay, I think there's so much good energy at the start of an idea, and we don't need all that legalese. We're a team, and we're like Bill Gates, and the. Well, I'm sure there were lots of things that happened as they got beyond the garage, right? But but you plan for that, okay? What are people's role going to be? Who's going to have creative control? What, what direction is this going in? And John, I said that ours was less controversial, but we turned our mind to that early. Right. And that really helps out later on if there is some disagreement. Well, wait a minute. We actually have a mechanism that we thought about early on. So it's about planning for something. And if it all stays copacetic and everybody, which it rarely does, I think over time, there's always one different view. And that's great. That's probably part of the creative process. But planning to have a structure in place for something that may not happen, but there's a structure there. Transparency seems to be a big uh, concept to protect an idea with several stakeholders um, without any conflict or at least to try to co avoid conflict. Um, so comparing that again a little bit to academia and industry, you mentioned that a little bit, John. Who, how do you agree on who has the rights, for example? And what's the difference between processes like that in academia versus industry? Well, you know, in in academia, I think there's actually some some interesting parallels. Um, in academia, you know, there's a principle of co of collegiality, and so you know the the way uh, we've done it is is as a team. So um, you know, all decisions will be made by the team. Nobody gets to take their ball and go home because nobody has the ball. The ball's in the center of the table. Um, uh, we also are subject to policies. Um, that there may be some policies at Allard that I don't know about. Uh, you know, Nikos is 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 in uh, you know the the Allard senior team, and so it, it it will be on him to some degree to figure out what the policies are, talk to the dean, uh, get any feedback that we may need in terms of deciding what to do on, on the rights issue uh, with respect to this technology. And then over Allard, we have UBC itself, um, which is pretty sophisticated um, in some of these areas. So exactly how we will access uh, UBC Uh, it's quite possible the dean will have something to say about that, or do we have to visit UBC Council's office? We don't know any of this now, and and until we know we have something uh, that others want and is at the level um, uh, of uh, quality that we are satisfied with, we're probably you know not not going to ask a bunch of people a bunch of premature questions and waste their time. So a lot of it's going to be timing. On, in the private sector, uh, it's often the investors. Uh, there might be a venture capital firm involved or, um, or, or family and friends and family investors. And so the same principle of transparency and the same principles of Uh, you know, uh, of trust, what we call collegiality, I think in the business world we call trust, um, apply. Um, and then again, if, if, if somebody takes their ball and goes home, uh, usually 
the project just fails. You know, I, I've never seen it actually succeed in any environment <laughs> when somebody, you know, basically pulls, you know, pulls a veto out of their back pocket and says, this is not happening. You know, it, it falls apart. So, uh, I, you know, the, the, uh, the, the constraint is that if you really want to succeed at it, you're going to have to figure out 99 out of 100 times how to do it together. The role of in-house counsel is really important. I have no doubt as we get to the final stage, we will go to the UBC counsel office. Even if we don't see an issue, they may see an issue, and that's what they're trained to do. And I would just say, if you're developing these ideas within a corporate structure or even a nonprofit or something, you often have in-house counsel. And I think you alert that counsel sooner rather than later. We're developing this idea within the company. Perhaps you can keep some eye on it. And it's I, we actually have a uh, an in-house uh, program that um, uh, where students get to, for a semester, play the role of in-house counsel supervised within a company. Man, it's a challenging job because it used to be you just send that out to expert lawyers. Oh, you're a referral service. Well, now companies are streamlining. No, we want you to do the contract stuff. We want you to do the HR and the IP. But I think you do want to be, if you are lucky enough to have an in-house counsel, letting them know sooner rather than later we're developing it. We may be coming to you and proactively, you may be telling us a few things we need to keep an eye on as we're doing it. So up to this point, have there been any legal issues that you've encountered so far? And do you have any anticipated legal issues that you're already planning for? Well, I, I think the one that we spent time on, uh, and you have to spend time on in the university environment, and I would say in a business environment, is user privacy, user confidentiality, and designing for that. That's probably the biggest one we have faced so far. And the one that we have to face if, 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 if all lights are green in terms of user testing, and we're still a ways away from, you know, it's probably next year's moots where we, we, we always plan to have a really usable app. So we're, we're, we're a ways away. But once we know something, then that, the licensing issue that we're alluding to and how, it, and, and how we make the product available to others and, you know, on what conditions um, will loom large. Um, those are the two issues. Anything I'm missing, Nikos? No, and I think one thing we may have to turn to, we've already had a bit of interest from some uh, private companies, large companies who, who I think see the virtual world and the meta universe and this being a small part of what they might want to be involved in, that's at a point we would be involving university council oh, and sure. maybe even outside council because it will allow us maybe to get to generation six in two months rather than two years. But, and, and the university, one thing, you know, I don't do enough work in sciences, this stuff, these joint projects are happening all the time. The university actually encourages this, but it's gotta be an extra careful process. And I would also say, I would echo John's thing about access. We do, part of the collegial nature of us is not just for students across Canada. I think we will eventually want to make this available to all MOOS students everywhere, but we want to make sure that UBC still retains some credit and control over that. That will be, I think, an easier process than if a private company wants to get involved, even not to market it themselves, but to just help us develop, develop the technology in a way that gets them in the, into that sort of work zone, which may be useful for them long term, that's where we would have lawyers papering every part of the process. And Sarah, I just want to add one thing, because I, I, it's, it's important and, and, and you know, we, we have not even done and we will have to do at a certain point. Um, uh, a, a patent review. We're going to have to ask ourselves, have we got something here that is unique enough or put together in uh, a unique enough way that, that it is patentable? And if it's patentable, what are the consequences of that? It would presumably be a university patent. But again, none of that's been worked out yet. We're just, 
We're just working on the project and trying to make it successful. And there will be a time uh, in the next year where we may uh, want to go to university council and get an assessment of what we have. There, there's definitely intellectual property uh, in the uh, in in the project um, of various kinds. Most notably, um, uh, Nikos uh, wrote incredibly brilliant questions. He wrote the dialogue that is at the heart of it. Um, and, you know, copyright's automatic. So that's Nikos's copyright. Uh, so there, there, all of these questions, there, there, there is a time and a place, and we are approaching that time and place. Uh, but there's no point in over planning uh, unless you know that you've really got something and you can define what you have. We're still in development. So as long as we're mindful of the legal possibilities, um, uh, you know, it, it's probably prudent to just wait for the right time. We'll be right back after our sponsored question of the episode. John, you are also faculty at the Center for Digital Media. What excites you about working with Master of Digital Media students as an IP lawyer? Well, I mean, what's exciting is students who are who are innovating all the time. I mean, that's that is the the pedagogy and and the educational menu at the CDM is is constantly innovating, constantly creating digital possibilities. And so people come up with really interesting ideas that from a, you know, uh, from a law, uh, a lawyer or law teacher point of view, because I, I, I'm approaching it really as a law teacher, as faculty, it can be just uh, really challenging and really, really fun because You know, we're, we're talking about people coming up with amazing ideas that actually get implemented in the real world. I don't know, 30, 40% of the time, you know, so many student groups go on to, uh, to uh, b become businesses or, you know, take a shot at, at the entrepreneurial path. So that's the, that, that's the, the most fun is that there's always something new and different that the students will come up with that no one has ever thought of before. Or certainly I've never been asked, you know, uh, how does the law impact this totally different idea? So it's very challenging and it's very fun for me. So something I wonder in this context, how does law keep up with innovation while society is evolving so fast? So how can you apply a law that was written a long time ago to digital and new evolving technology and products? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one uh, to start and Nikos may want to add. Um, the, the basic ways are law reform. So we do see laws change. Uh, and legislatures change laws, especially in the digital era. And we're seeing, you know, right now all sorts of demands around changing laws for reasons of privacy and surveillance and, um, and, and the intrusion um, uh, that, that social media in particular uh, has in, into our lives. Um, so we do change laws. Uh, judges Uh, you know, and, 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 and courts, um, uh, you know, sometimes appear to move slowly, um, but they don't really. They wrestle on a regular basis with uh, evolutions in technology. Um, and, you know, by the time we get to the Supreme Court of Canada, and, and yeah, I'm not saying it's instantaneous. It takes a few years. Um, uh, for, for the corpus of cases to come up um, and, and, and for the courts to, uh, to give uh, direction on them. But we saw, for example, the Supreme Court of Canada release five very important copyright cases. Uh, one Friday uh, in 2012, uh, which, which we call the pentology of cases. And it basically mapped out um, copyright in the digital world and concepts such as users' rights 
Um, so I, I, I certainly give uh, the Canadian courts and the Supreme Court of Canada, and in particular, Madam Justice Rosalie Abella, who's recently retired from the court, a great deal of credit for, um, for not only keeping up, but, but looking um, uh, very hard at what the future is likely to look at. So, I, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, it takes time for new technologies to be understood and used um, by judges. So I'm not pretending that, that it's, it's perfect. Very hard to argue a video game case uh, in front of someone who never played a video game, which would have been the case 20 years ago, let's say. And we still see what I would consider to be mistakes made. Um, but overall, the law gets it right. And younger judges, you know, our students will be judges someday, Nikos, and they'll get it right. Uh, and then there'll be some other challenge, and it may not be technology, uh, and they'll have to wrestle with, with that. that. That's what we, uh, as, as lawyers and, and law teachers and students of law, are, are always wrestling with. How do we get to justice uh, in any particular area? And just like evolving technology uh, or innovating, it, it's an iterative process. It's, it's, uh, there, 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 there's a lot of individual steps. Uh, there's a lot of pivoting. Uh, there's a lot of trying to get it right. Now, Nikos teaches this particularly with respect to criminal law, so um, uh, he'll have a better answer than I. No, uh, not at all. But I would just I would just comment on a more even basic thing about the law getting technology right, about lawyers and technology. And, and, and some like John are actually leaders beyond the law in the field generally. But I can tell you, in terms of lawyers and technology, COVID did many horrible things and we're hopefully coming out of it. I can tell you it forced lawyers to start looking at technologies that were there and there simply wasn't the impetus to use them okay i just think of and again when no one can afford basic legal services okay going out and seeing a client in toronto and the airfare and the taxi and the hotel room and booking a boardroom and you know following up with some witness interviews okay and a client who just can barely afford the basic trial and looking at these costs, I think this sudden realization that we have this thing called Zoom or a million other programs and we can confidentially meet and see each other and have an exchange and by the way, be showing you documents as we're going through this on a split screen. I think obviously it was known that this technology exists, but it simply was not being used. And as I said, it was really a wake up that both when we think of in terms of the environment about what travel involves and access to justice. If we can have a one hour meeting rather than $10,000 spent on plane trips, hotels, and a lot more time taken and so on, I think it was an incredible wake up, including Doing Zoom court, okay, has incredible efficiencies. Okay, it used to be you go to the Supreme Court of Canada, it's a three or four day affair of going out there in the hotel and so on. And in appellate proceedings, I think where you're judging the credibility of a witness and you're cross-examining, it, it's controversial whether Zoom can, can essentially pick up on some of those um, nuances. Okay, appellate proceedings are essentially no witnesses just arguing the law before judges. Some lawyers have said, I think I have a more focused hearing on Zoom because there isn't the distractions in the courtroom. It's the judges and I looking at each other. And most of all, I'm not expending extra resources, traveling and so on. And I think it was a huge wake up. And I think a lot of the other industries and academic units also felt that efficiency of doing things virtually. Like, yes. Where are you now with this virtual moot project? Well, we are we're kind of at the end of what I would call the pre-alpha stage. We have something that is very rough, that students could use if they wanted to, 
um, that needs a lot of work on kind of the user experience end and a lot of smoothing out. Um, and you know, we I think we have a pretty good sense of what we need to do and 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 where the um, where the unevenness in, in the experiences might be. Um, so we really have to get student testing of the actual app. That's how I see it over to Nikos. Yeah, I think we've got a good basic product that could actually help students now. And that will keep me motivated, right? I think we will have something for next year's Mooters that will be there. One thing that's interesting for me, and it's something I constantly say at our meetings, I have no idea what the technological implications of asking for certain changes. So I'll constantly be saying, could we change this? And please let me know if it's a big deal. And, you know, sometimes my instincts are right. Changing colors, changing questions. Well, that's pretty easy. One thing I was surprised in, and this is just a small example of what we deal with, you know, the essence of moot court, the, the essence of real court is not making your presentation a judge will immediately come in with questions, which are the most vital part of it, because this is the judge saying, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I may decide your case on, and I want your answer to this particular challenge I have. And so we have set of pre-programmed questions that are common questions that are asked, and we were just gonna have them released at certain sort of um, set intervals, but something that John, had an instinct that we might be able to do early on, but we, we, our ultimate goal is AI, where the computer would hear the part of your submission and ask a question specific to that. John just had a smaller feature, which I think we can incorporate, and, and, and in fact, they're working on. Can you at least have that question come where there's a pause in the student presentation? Right. And so these are the things and, and this is why it's so great having the substantive and the technology people working together. OK, I would have assumed that was too big of an ask for generation one. OK, the technology people uh, at our EML lab says, no, that's actually doable. We've actually got the first part. They ask the question in the pause, but they're not, they sort of we need to then set that up for the next pause. Anyway, it, it's it, it's a matter. We've got a basic product which keeps us motivated. I'm satisfied. If nothing else happened, we would have something useful for students. We're now refining things to make the experience better. And I think I think in the fall, we will have something quite useful for the students. So hearing all these experiences, and especially for you, Nikos, as um, also being in law, but not in IP law, what are the learnings you have had so far? Well, I would say, again, I came to it with probably the person on the street has more intellectual property knowledge than me. It, and, and this is the key to having somebody like John or retaining a lawyer, even if it's for a limited number of hours, these are the questions to ask. You know, my instinct was, well, if we have students try it out, let's just record all their data and that will be really useful. And John would say, oh, there might be a small privacy issue with that. Oh, there's a private company involved. I'm like, bring them on into the meeting. And John said, well, we might want to have an agreement first. So, you know, it, 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 it's non-instinctual, some of it. Um, and that's why having somebody with the knowledge of how sometimes things go wrong and so on, having a person like that, at least as part of your committee early on was incredibly useful because, and when John said it, it made sense. It just wasn't something I instinctually thought about before I started you know, recording everything a student did on their computer. Those are great takeaways. Um, do you both have any resources that people who want to create an innovation can learn more about, um, you know, to steps to keep in mind, any resources that you can recommend or call to actions? I think have to, uh, uh, Nikos may have some, but um, one thing about being uh, a, a law professor, you you get very used to saying, uh, "Let me get back to you on that and <laughs> figure out the right answer." Because I I don't um, you know I, I I I know kind of lots of resources, but resources for innovators from a legal perspective. Um, various law firms um, have pages on their websites 
um, dedicated to innovators. And I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. Um, I have not seen, and, and this is what I would research, I have not seen a great legal blog for innovators um, uh, yet, or at least it hasn't crossed my desk. It doesn't mean it's not out there. And I suspect it must be out there, but there are certainly law firm pages um, uh, that, 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 that provide resources and law firms write articles about different aspects of IP law all the time. So um, if you go to a, a good IP law firm's website, uh, you'll certainly find some resources on topics that are relevant to you as an innovator. Yeah, and I would just, uh, those are great ideas, just set out one thing you may have is you may be a student developing an idea. You may be a person uh, who's unemployed, who's and this is exactly what how that gets people out of poverty. Sometimes is 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 developing ideas that could potentially have commercial application, and then you're like, well, I might want to get a trademark. I might want to create a contract because there's going to be someone funding me for a bit like that, and you're really stuck. And, and I would encourage people to get a hold of, and if you Google it, the Allard Law, a business law clinic, what we have is a number of students um, actually spend part of their term doing free legal services for people in a number of areas of business law, including some areas of intellectual property. And as John said, it relates to a lot of other areas of business law, like contract law and so on. They are working on two senior supervising lawyers that are absolute amazing in this field. It's represented, by, it's um, funded by Richard Bell Sutton, who do an incredible job in supporting the student work. And I would encourage people, and we actually, with the, we have a tie to the business school where people, students have ideas, they're paying enough in tuition, they don't have 50 grand for legal fees. Uh, if you are an entrepreneur, if you are developing something and you don't have the resources to hold a lawyer, get a hold of our business law clinic. They may be able to provide you with some free legal advice. They may be able to provide you with a draft contract. They may be able to help you in some of the processes you're involved in to help get your idea off the ground. Perfect. So today we learned an overview of IP law, that it is an umbrella term that encompasses three completely different streams, and then talked about virtual moot that served as our case study. And through this, we learned about the importance of establishing clear objectives and using technology as a tool to reach them, engaging the end user for continuous feedback, reaching out to experts for help, and working collaboratively and transparently to ensure that the team is all on the same page. Ultimately, as Nikos mentioned earlier, plan for the worst and hope for the best. <laughs> so, That's a good, it's a good life strategy. I know. So thank you again <laughs> both to John and Nikos for joining us and sharing their journey and progress with Virtual Moot. And we can't wait to see it come to life in the next year or so. So thank you again. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thanks so much, Isabel and Sarah. Thank you to the Master of Digital Media program for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about the Master of Digital Media program at thecdm.ca. That's it for today, right from the heart of Vancouver. Keep in touch in the meanwhile on Twitter at Raincoat Podcast. Till next time. Stay dry and stay safe.